You are listening to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by Jason Lemkin at JasonLK on Twitter and Harry Stebbings at HStebbings on Snapchat. And before we start today, we have to say a huge congratulations to Jason for raising the incredible 70 million Sasta fund and some immensely exciting years ahead with that. And if you'd like to congratulate Jason and share the news, you can do this by clicking the click to tweet in the description of this episode or find him separately on Twitter at JasonLK. But now for the show today and moving Moving from one of the US's best SaaS investors in Jason to one of Europe's best SaaS investors in Christoph Jans. Christoph is the co-founder and managing partner at Point9 Capital, one of Europe's best early stage venture funds. And Christoph himself specializes in all things SaaS at Point9, and he's made more than 20 SaaS startup investments. And prior to Point9, Christoph co-founded two internet startups. And in 2008, he became an angel investor where he discovered Zendesk, which soon came to be his first angel investment. However, enough from me, so I'm now so delighted to pass over to the main man, Christoph Jans at Point9 Capital. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Christoph, such a pleasure to have you on the official Sasta podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Harry. Pleasure to be on the show. Now, I'd love to get the ball rolling today by discussing how you came to found Point9 and, and why you felt there was an opportunity for a, really a SaaS-specialized VC fund in Berlin. So if I were to describe my background in like the 140 characters, which you typically have on Twitter, it would be entrepreneur turned angel investor turned micro VC. I think that captures it pretty well. Um, so I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. I co-founded two internet startups and, and after um, selling them, I started to make some angel investments, did uh, angel investments for a couple of years. And, and while doing that, I, I got to know Pavel Chudzinski, who at that time was already managing a small friends and family type, um, like angel type investment vehicle, like a, like a very, very small VC fund. And, and we got to know each other, did a couple of deals together. And after a few years of doing that, we decided that we want to join forces and, and, and create Point9 Capital. And talk to me, I'm always too intrigued when you have an angel turned VC. Tia, how do you transition your investing mindset between angel and VC and what that kind of investment decision making process change looked like for you? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think part of the answer is that when you're an angel investor, um, there is obviously uh, no one that you have to feel responsible for. It's just your own money. You don't have to um, ask anybody for for consent or, or advice, which I think maybe can be good, good and bad at the same time. So um, I actually like the fact that with point nine, it's not just just me. I have a, like a sounding board. I have uh, colleagues and, and great, great people and we in, in our team and we make those investment decisions to together. And sometimes my my colleagues maybe stop me from doing some of the worst mistakes that I maybe would make if I would have been would be on my own, on just on my own. The, the second part of the difference between angel invest and investing out of a fund is that with a fund you have something like a a fund model in place and you have to think more carefully about what kind of returns 
do you have to generate in order to, uh, in the end, have an, an outcome that, that makes your LPs happy? And, and what is the, like the timing and the timeline for your investments and exits? Um, so there, there is more thinking that goes into that. And it also means that the bar is higher in terms of what is the size of the potential outcomes that you that you're looking for as an, as an angel investor if you invest at a low valuation and the company gets sold for for 50 million dollars or maybe even just 20 million dollars it can still be um, a great outcome for the founders and for the angel investors but if if you have a fund even if it's a small fund like ours which is about 50 million euros even then you can't really uh, create a great return for the entire fund by um, having exits in in that ballpark. You really need much much bigger uh, successes. And I'm I'm really intrigued because obviously you spoke about the fund there, and the fund itself is based out of Berlin. Uh, so I want to hear first what are the pros and cons of investing out of Berlin. I was lucky enough to go to the Blue Yard conference the other day and see Berlin. Mm-hmm. So what are the pros and cons of investing out of Berlin? Yeah, um, I think it's a great place to to be right now. It, it's been a great place in the last couple of years as well, and I think it will continue to be a great place because Berlin has really become a, a startup hub and and one of the locations in 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 all over Europe for for founders to start new companies. It's also still relatively cheap if you compare it to London and and Paris. I I can't really think of cons or, or disadvantages of Berlin, especially if you're open to investing outside of Berlin or outside of, of Germany as well. Um, so it doesn't really matter that much, maybe. We're open to investing all over Europe. We, we really view all of Europe as our home market and have made investments in many different European countries. So the fact that we're in Berlin doesn't uh, prevent us from investing elsewhere as well. And I've interviewed now many of your founders uh, from Europe who've now gone out to the US. So anyone from Nicholas from Algonia to, uh, I think, Mathilde at Front is an investment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so first, I mean, talk to me about kind of actually, yeah, let's talk about the move. I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. Both of them are now in San Francisco. So when should founders make the move out to the US? Let's not be so San Francisco specific. But when should mm. founders make the move to the US? Um, it depends. Um, like Front, since you mentioned Mathilde as an example, made the move really early on. Mathilde really wanted to build a company in the US and decided to move the, the company from Paris to San Francisco at, at a very early stage. In case of um, Algolia, they first built the foundation of the company in Paris and build a very significant and, and, and excellent engineering and product team in in Paris. And then at a slightly later stage, decided that uh, one of the founders, Nicola, uh, would move to San Francisco and uh, start hiring people there as well. So um, I think the right moment in time depends on, on a variety of factors. But I think it really is only a question of time, at least for a SaaS company, with with very few exceptions, you have to build a a global, or you have to you should, you should have the aspiration to build a SaaS company that can be a global winner. You can't assume that you start a SaaS company, let's say in Germany or in France, and then you 
build a national or local champion. I think it just doesn't work that way. You said there were many reasons, obviously, for going out there. Um, one of them, uh, for many people, is VC funding. How important mm. do you think a U.S. investor or other partner is to help SaaS companies in the U.S.? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical, maybe even not primarily because of the money, but because of the credibility that you get by partnering with a strong local VC in, in the Bay Area or, or wherever you, you end up moving. Um, so I think it's about the credibility and the network and obviously also the advice. Like without that support, um, I think it's very, very hard for European founders to set up shop in San Francisco and and attract great people. I think in the end, it's mainly about building a great team over there. And it's very hard to compete with all the other great and well-funded startups in, in the war for talent if you don't have a, a great local VC um, as a partner. In, in regards to war for talent, I think I think we often underestimate how talented Europe is engineering-wise. However, mm. on the on the sales and the marketing side and traditional kind of customer service and customer success, do you think Europe has those SaaS elements that San Francisco in particular now is particularly accelerating on? Yeah. Um, as you said, building a, a great engineering team is definitely possible in, in Europe. And, and I'm really glad for every company that has the ability and, and the access to talent in Europe to build their engineering teams over here, because it's just so much harder and so much more expensive to do that in the U.S., at the same time, when it comes to sales and marketing, I think it's really, really hard to find that type of talent in Europe. Um, I think there are just very, very few really experienced VPs of sales and VPs of marketing with a lot of B2B SaaS experience in Europe. And the, the reason for that is probably that you just don't have super successful role models here, like like the Salesforce and the Zendesk and um, maybe Marketo or HubSpot or uh, Viva or Workday or all these all these great most successful SaaS companies they just happen to be um, in the US and and therefore also that's that's where the the right people have uh, have started their careers and and gained gained exposure and experience to um, to the best practices. Um, and, the, and the most successful ways of doing things in SaaS. So what can European founders do then in, in this predicament of kind of um, hiring uh, gap where, where we don't have those experienced sales and marketing leaders? Should they hire into the unknown with kind of enthusiastic, young and passionate people? Or should they look for the much more experienced yeah, I think it's a function of the stage. In the earlier stages, you can't afford or you won't be able to attract those super experienced VPs of sales or marketing anyway. So you should hire passionate, hungry, intelligent, smart people. If you find the right ones, I think they can actually get you pretty far. They can probably get you to um, a couple of millions in, in ARR. But at some point, you probably need to add experienced senior people who've done it before when you want to go from like a few million in in arr to really tens of millions in in arr you need to hire so many people that most probably i think need uh, people who, who've done this before because it's just such a different different job 
So, so, um, you, so you agree with Reid Hoffman, who states that you know the company that builds the the people that build the company won't necessarily be the ones there at the end, and you do need a transition. I mean, I think ideally the the founding te- team stays in the company at least for a very long time. Um, I think that's always the uh, the goal that we have and the ideal outcome when when we invest in a company. Like we we always hope that the founding team will continue to play key roles for for a long time, like 10 years or more. Um, I think it's more about adding people um, than, than replacing people. What do you think is the hardest? We mentioned uh, the hard roles in Europe to fill. What do your portfolio companies have as the hardest? What's the most common gap in kind of hiring? I think it's the VP of sales and the VP of marketing role. Uh, and Jason is always talking to me about uh, hiring sales reps two by two uh, and being able to compare. Do you very much follow this thesis of kind of comparability among sales teams? Yeah, totally. Um, and I think you could probably even make the case for adding a third one or a fourth one um, if, if you can afford it, if, if you can manage it. I think the the point why... Jason says you shouldn't just hire one person and then draw any conclusions from from that is because like in a vacuum without any benchmarks or comparables, um, it's just very hard to make that assessment. You don't know if it didn't work out because the there is a glitch in the product or in the process of it or if it was just the wrong person. With two people, you obviously reduce the probability of drawing incorrect conclusions based on that. And and with more people, the probability gets even even smaller. And I, I want to discuss some of your portfolio companies now. We, we've touched upon a, a few of them slightly. Uh, and I want to talk about one angel investment, actually, that you made in the form of Zendesk. Mm-hmm. And, and this one, this question is from Jason. And he said, kind of, what made it seem like a winner back when you invested in Zendesk? And yeah. what have been your major learnings from investing in such a rocket ship? Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because... Zendesk was my first SaaS investment, so I really it was an incredibly lucky shot, and I, I I didn't have the knowledge of today, so I couldn't even compare it to to any to anything else. Um, so I, I what I saw was it's it's a great product. It, it was a very consumerized product even at that time. So in contrast to most other enterprise SaaS, it was a beautiful product and I could sign up for it immediately and it was a great experience. So I was really attracted by the product. I was very convinced of the team. I really, really liked um, those guys. And then there was a little bit of validation from a handful of customers which seemed to be happy with the product. But that was really it. Like I had no idea of the, of the market size. It wasn't obvious at all, neither to me nor to any of the investors. And obviously, lots of investors actually passed on the opportunity to invest in Zendesk's Series A. Um, it was really hard to hard to predict. I saw some very promising elements, but I had no idea how, how, how big it could get. And what do you think your learnings have been then from, from, from that? One of the learnings, and this is maybe not an entirely new learning, but um, more like maybe like a confirmation of what I already assumed is that the team is 
uh, is absolutely critical and it's probably common sense but but that doesn't that that doesn't make it wrong um it's so hard to build a company it's so hard to build a, a large company and it's so crazily hard to build a company that gets to hundreds of millions of, of revenues there are so many things that that can go wrong you just need an incredibly good uh, founding team to to have a chance at that and then i've got two things to unpack there because there's there's quite a, a lot of stuff there and i want to first of all you said about the consumerization element of zendesk mm. and i had nakul mandan a, a SaaS investor at Lightspeed on the other day, and he said we'd see the next wave of the consumerization of the enterprise in the form of business models. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm intrigued to see what you see as the next wave of consumerization of the enterprise. Yeah, we've thought about this a little, and I think business models is is certainly one aspect of it, and Zenefits is, is maybe a good example, although they are obviously in a lot of trouble these days, but, but still to have a, an, a model which is initially free and which is then um, monetized in, in other ways, I think this, this could be part of it. Um, I think another part of it could be really a mobile first approach. There are obviously plenty of very large, successful companies um, that started with a mobile app or actually only have a mobile app, such as um, WhatsApp or Instagram. So it'll be interesting to see which SaaS company will really be the first first one in the B2B world that is really totally mobile first. Um, I, I don't think it's... Maybe, although I don't know what the percentage of desktop uh, versus mobile usage is is for them. I don't know if are you aware of any? I'm not. I'd uh, love to know. Okay, yeah, would be interesting. That would be interesting. Yeah, and, and then I think the maybe the third aspect is um, I, I'm very excited about the opportunity for business apps to just become smarter. And I think there are some elements of that mainly in the consumer world, which you can see, like just, just as a small example, when you get an email and you're using Gmail or, or Apple, there is something in that email which looks like an invitation to an event or like a location or, or a time that this gets automatically added as a suggestion to your calendar. Things like this would just make your products work smarter in the background using smart algorithms or big data. If I'm allowed to use the, the buzzword of machine learning, then machine learning or AI. I think this is super promising, but we haven't, to be honest, we haven't really seen many, many examples of that in practice. Absolutely. No, that's, I'm very much with you on uh, the integration of machine intelligence into SaaS. That sounds like a complete yeah, report. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, okay, yeah. we talked about Zendesk and a great team. So what do you think separates a great CEO from a good CEO? What is a really great SaaS CEO? Yeah, um, I think in the end, the main job of any successful CEO of a big and, and growing company is to have a strong and clear vision for the company and to be able to recruit and retain and, and motivate a fantastic team. So I think that's that's true for SaaS, but that's probably also true in, in any other industry since the role of the original founder CEO obviously changes dramatically as the company grows. In the end, even if the in the very beginning maybe the founder builds the first version of the product by by himself, in in the end, if the company grows, 
there is obviously no time for the CEO to, to any of the individual contributions him or herself anymore. So it's only about finding the right people, setting the right uh, high-level objectives and making those people um, successful. So what we really have to bet on um, when we look at early-stage companies and early-stage CEOs is the ability of a, a founder to transition into a great manager. And I, I want to dive into a quick fire round now. So uh, 60 seconds faster. So 60 seconds per answer. How does that sound? Sounds great. So let's do favorite SaaS material. What's your kind of must-reads on book, blogs, newsletters? Everything that Jason Lemkin writes is, is a must-read must for for founders, and, and I'm not saying this because you're affiliated with Jason and 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 Sasser. I'm I'm honestly in a, a, one of his biggest fans, and I think just the the wealth of knowledge which as a, which you as a founder can acquire just by reading all of Jason's Quora posts is just incredible. And this is something which which just didn't exist a couple of years ago. And then there are of course other great people like Tomas Tungush and, and David Skok. And I think b between all of them, every question on SaaS that a founder can come up with it has already been answered. Obviously, you still have to apply that knowledge and so on, but, but still, I think it's an incredible wealth of knowledge that is accessible today. And then what's your biggest advice to early stage SaaS founders? If I want to try to make it as general as possible, then it would maybe be um, to think really carefully about what your what your customer is. Try to think about whether you think it's possible to find marketing and sales strategies that allow you to acquire that type of customer with the ACV associated with that customer at reasonable costs at, at very, very large scale. And I think it's probably a good idea if at the beginning you start to think about like what is really the kind of animal, as I called it, that, that you want to hunt. And, and what's the biggest challenge then to you uh, running point nine? What, what, what troubles you most? Just just our, the limitation of our bandwidth and having to focus our time on the right things in an ocean of infinite possibilities. So, But it's probably not different from the challenges faced by founders or journalists or, or many other people. So I think you, it's it's just about like when we have to make a, a lot of decisions, we have to decide which of those 200 or 300 or so opportunities that we could look at every month do we actually dive into but that's just it's just part of our job and then moving away from the quick fire round i want to discuss mm -hmm. two more questions uh, and and first is the evolution of the world of SaaS investing and and how we've seen the industry alter whether the bar is higher to get funded today with the more companies that mm -hmm. are being created but there's also more money so mm -hmm. is it harder to get funded as a SaaS startup today in terms of a longer term trend, I, I would say that the bar has increased in terms of what do VCs expect in terms of growth and where you are in terms of your, your revenue level and your understanding of the product, the market, the distribution channels and so on. But at the, t at the same time, I think it has also become comparably easier for founders 
to meet those expectations um, compared to five or ten years ago. And that is related to the, the availability of all of, of all of that knowledge that I've mentioned already. Um, the availability uh, of tools as well and, and, and the software and the infrastructure stack. So five or ten years ago, um, founders had to build many more things um, themselves, which today you can just buy or rent, whether that's in terms of analytics or subscription payments or billing or, or hosting. There are so many great software products that you can use today, which 10 years ago you would have had to build on your own. So I would say the bar has increased on, on balance. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the times are worse for founders. And then I want to finish today by discussing one final thing, and it's kind of the personalization of VC and, and marketing within the industry. We discussed the proliferation of funding there, which means you need to differentiate as a VC, obviously. And you have a very strong following on your blog and social media. So how do you view this facet of your business, and what's the fundamental reason behind doing it? Yeah, I started my blog 10 years ago or so, so I wasn't even an investor at that time. I, I just started it to write about interesting things or stuff that I think is interesting or that I'm, I'm passionate about. Over time, I put more and more focus on SaaS as I did more and more SaaS investments and developed some more knowledge and, and expertise in, in that area. The effects of that have been really incredible, incredible for me. Um, it triggered so many great discussions. Um, I, I'm learning from people who uh, react to my blog posts, who write comments or react on Twitter or send me emails. It seems like a, a lot of the uh, stuff or at least some of the stuff that I've built, like some of the templates and so on, filled a gap and, and resonated um, with a lot of people. For, for, for me, it, it's a great investment uh, of time to, uh, to write and to try to crystallize my, my thoughts there and, and occasionally come up with, with tools which other people might find helpful. And then do you I'm not, not quite sure if that, if that answers the, the question. Was there a second part of the question? Well, also, I'm just uh, interested to hear whether you think VCs now need to have that personal brand to succeed in the industry, maybe yeah. in terms of deal flow. Yeah. I think you need to have a personal brand. I think you don't necessarily have to build it in the same way like I build it or maybe Jason built it. I think there are other fantastic investors that have an incredibly strong brand in the community, having been in this industry for, for many years or decades and by just having an incredibly strong personal network. Maybe, maybe blog, blogging is not for everybody and it, I think it doesn't, it's not like everybody has to um, use that approach. But, but I do think you have to stand for something. I mean, if, you, if you're not known for for your expertise or, or or your knowledge in in anything, if all you have to all you can offer is money, that's a pretty weak proposition because then the only thing that counts is price, and that's obviously not uh, what you want to do as an, an investor. Just always try to offer the highest valuation, and, and even then, the, the the best founders won't even pick you if even if you offer the highest valuation because the best founders know they they need great people who who can offer them much more than just money well christoph thank you so much for coming on the show today it's been absolutely fantastic to hear about you and point nine's incredible journey and we look very forward to seeing more in the future especially with sasta's new fund 
Great stuff. Thanks so much for having me, Harry. And a huge hand to Christoph for coming on the show today. And do not forget, if you want to congratulate Jason on the new fund, then all you have to do is click the click to tweet link in the show notes or send him a tweet on JasonLK on Twitter. Likewise, you can hit me up on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs or head over to the home of Sasta at sasta.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-R.com. As always, we so appreciate all your support. And I'm very excited to bring you Friday's episode with the founder of one of YC's hottest startups from his latest batch. Yes, we will be speaking to the founder of Birdly. Thank you so much as always and we look forward to bringing you Friday's episode.